Riverside. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. We have a very special guest for any of our listeners on YouTube. We have my good friend here, Brady. It's his first appearance on the podcast. He's now trying to bite me. So, um, Brady, do you have anything to say to the listeners of the Backside Ground Balls pod, other than the fact that you would probably enjoy biting them? No? You're a little shy today? Okay. Well, let me get him off the screen. Hope any of our YouTube listeners that enjoys dogs got to enjoy that little moment of our our good friend and number one fan, Brady. Uh, That is uh, my golden doodle that my fiance and I share. So welcome back to the pod. Obviously, I mentioned that we're going to try to make up for the episode for that we missed in week one of the year. And a little bit of background is I am between work, kind of. Uh, I had a seasonal position at UPS. I have a couple days off until that clears up and potentially get moved into a full-time position. So one of the things that I wanted to do just to kind of get as much content out there as possible is just record an episode a day, whether that be with Dan and Colin, whether it be just me in short form, anybody who knows me knows once I get rolling, I can get a little long winded. So there's no doubt that this could turn into an episode that that is a little bit longer than I intentionally planned, but I just want to get some short form content out there just to kind of build the podcast and continue to produce as much as we can. So as I kind of thought about what I wanted to talk about, I really kind of came into the fact of we've spent so much time, obviously, with the addition of Colin talking about pitching and rightfully so. Colin and Dan are two of our pitching experts and and they bring such a unique perspective on on that on the whole and we should abuse that not even use it abuse it to the point of using it as much as possible and using their content that they can bring and everything of that nature so we've talked a lot about pitching recently i wanted to do an episode kind of talking a little bit more about offensive development and specifically individual offensive development in a team setting right? Because obviously that's where I have my background in a little bit and in the past of working with a team, but also trying to make player development as individualized as possible. And this is what MLB organizations are doing at all levels is they have the resources to not specifically put guys in buckets, but allow guys to develop in their own unique way of what works for them. The best organizations, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Houston Astros, these are organizations that find a way to put their guys in a position to be successful and go from there. So I kind of want to dive in on on what my experiences led me to and what I learned in those experiences and how important it is to whether it be coaches, whether it be players, or whether it just be fans to kind of relate what you see on the field. Um, but before we get into that, you know, I first want to address the fact that, you know, Dan and I had a very impassioned conversation the other night that was uh, published on Wednesday, I believe today's Thursday. Um, 
January 12th. Happy birthday, dad. I know I called you kind of an a-hole in the last episode. So uh, I apologize. It's your birthday now, so I'm not going to call you out for any of that baggage that you that you might have in there. But, uh, you know, the NCA actually for later that day passed legislation to make all volunteer positions full-time positions, which is just phenomenal. And, and we're going to see a ton of benefits for whether it be the coaching industry on the whole to have healthcare, to have dental, to, to be able to pr- put food on the table through the year and not have to just rely on camp money or stipends or second jobs or things like that. And, and the other thing is obviously for the athlete to be able to get more time with their coach, to be able to have a coach on campus all the time, be able to have that open door policy, be able to build those relationships. So we're super excited. We're definitely going to be tracking that and how that progresses over the multiple years ahead of college baseball. And also I'm going to start what it's 2023. So I'm going to start a 2024 campaign for hire Dan Galati. Um, now there's probably a ton of full-time positions opening up at that level. We're going to have a hire Dan Galati campaign going. So I'm going to be the ringleader of that. I'm, I'm going to start it. We're going to start making signs. We're going to make t-shirts. We're going to get, try to get him a job, a full-time gig at, at the division one levels. Cause that's a guy who deserves to be coaching. And that's a guy who should be coaching right now if it wasn't for the, the industry as a whole. But, um, you know, super excited to get back here on the pod and, and talk about offensive development today. It's a morning podcast, so I have my coffee with me. You guys usually get Dan and I and Colin late at night, so you usually get groggy voice, tired, just wanting to get off. So be a little jazzed up, especially once we get going talking about offensive development, because that's that's kind of my favorite thing to talk about, quite frankly. Sorry, I just had to enjoy a sip of my Nespresso, Nespresso pods. Any coffee drinkers out there, they're they're big time. They're big time. My my fiance is a huge coffee drinker. So um but into individual offensive development. You know, I think when I get asked and when I talk about offensive development, the I have to kickstart every conversation with just the matter of fact of it's about the relationship. It's about the relationship. It's about the relationship. And one of the things that I kind of mentioned in passing in the last episode was how unfair, if you want to call it unfair, a division three fall is for coaches and for athletes, quite frankly, because, you know, we live in an era and this is something that's talked about frequently at the division three level. So it's not like it's, it's, I'm pulling it out of left field or I'm trying to push legislation that people don't know about. We live in an era where kids go to play division three baseball to play baseball, right? Division three was created as this kind of thing where almost like an extension of high school, right? Get your time in the fall. You go all out in the spring, maybe play two sports. I mean, at some schools, I know a lot of, you know, female athletes do play two sports and and that's a freaking awesome experience. But, you know, a lot of the athletes at the, at the level that we were at, at Arcadia and the baseball players we were bringing in, like they want the D1 experience, right? They want to be coached up. They want to have the experience of playing as much as possible. They want to develop. They, some of them want to take their chances at, at professional baseball, at indie ball, at, you know, even nowadays in it, which division three is thinking about implementing a red shirt, potentially red shirting and using their last year at the division one level. We sent multiple kids up levels at, at Arcadia and that was a recruiting pitch that we used and, 
you know, with the transfer portal era being what it is and immediate eligibility, that's something that, you know, we encourage our athletes to, to take advantage of. And, and that's what they want, you know, just because they're overlooked in high school doesn't mean that they shouldn't get that opportunity at some point in their career when they, when they develop, quite frankly, and some division three schools develop better than division one schools because the lack of resources and the, the emphasis on the little things and the finer details that allows these guys to prosper. So, you know, one of the things that the reasons I firmly believe the division three fall is a disadvantage to quite frankly, anybody who's, who's in it, whether it be coaches or players is just because of the lack of time you get to build relationships, right? Last year was my first and only year at Arcadia. I walked in in the fall and I was passionate about leadership. I was passionate about coaching. I was passionate about all those things. And I, I, I always felt the need that I'm not going to be one of those rah-rah guys who just walks in and makes change, right? I got to develop relationships. I got to build bonds. I got to figure out what works. I got to figure out why this guy does this. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Because what people forget about swings in general, what coaches forget about swings in general, whether it be golf, whether it be baseball, whether it be any sport, the way you go about your business is like an art piece to you, right? You're passionate about it. There's a reason you got to the college level doing what you do, right? You think about whether you be a pitcher, hitter, anything like your mechanics, the way you do things, the way your hands sit, you know, you probably idolize some pitcher slash hitter who did things a certain way that allowed you to do that. You know, you hit with an open stance because you like Manny Machado or, you know, you hit with a leg kick because Bryce Harper, or, you know, you have a lot of hand movement because of Javier Baez, right? So I think so many times coaches see these guys and, and they think that they need and want fixing, right? Oh, I'm a coach. That's what I'm here to do. But most guys, myself included, had a certain reason for doing what I did. I thought it worked. I thought it was what was comfortable. I thought it's what put my body in a position to produce the most power. So if you walk in on day one and just start, you know, telling guys they're doing something wrong, I, I said it in the last podcast, be offended, right? I could walk down to Lillington Sports um, batting cages and and tell the little kid who's, who's swinging like, hey, like try this. And he'd be like, who are you? weirdo get lost right because that's the reality i have no relationship i have no bond so that's the first and foremost that that is top of everything in individualized and really offensive and really any player development you know you have to build that relationship with the athlete to be able to actually help them grow and put them in a position to be successful so that's first and foremost and and it doesn't just start go with your starting eight starting nine you know those guys that play every day you got to build a relationship since uh, you know i kind of want to primarily talk about team offensive development and how you individualize each of those you got to prioritize one through 17 right so when i walked into this position you know like i said we had 17 18 guys and the opportunity to build a relationship with 18 guys doesn't happen in 4 weeks some guys i laid the foundation with in the summer i'd met them through camps i'd met them through just them popping by the office things like that no no violations wink nod i didn't never saw him swing a bat wink nod um stuff like that i i mean just I'm joking because we actually didn't because Arcadia plays, you know, there aren't all division three programs that play by the rules, but you know, we we're very passionate about making sure we did things the right way. 
But, you know, you start to build some relationships in the summer based off of guys you meet and, and it's everything like, Hey, like ask them where they live. What's their stuff? You know, what's their major? Do they have a girlfriend? Where are they from? All those things like that. Do they like, you know, who's their favorite football team? Who's their favorite basketball team? Who's their favorite baseball team? All those things like that and kickstart conversations that way. You know, the amount of times I've spent time in the cage in the fall specifically talking about life, right? Who are your roommates? You know, like, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? Things like that. And the guy's just taking swings off the tee. They don't even realize like I'm laying the foundation for what's going to pay off in, in May. And now granted the benefit of being at a, the same position in the same school for multiple years is you lay that foundation for four weeks. It prospers in the spring. And then you walk into the fall of next year and you've just laid the groundwork to get hit the ground running and just be in a great position to help these guys turn into the best baseball players they could be. So first and foremost, it, it just flat out comes down to the relationship, right? Now, in terms of the actual production and the, the swing on a whole, one of the things that I prioritized and I really do believe it is starting to make headway at the major league level and it's starting to be something that people are valuing more, right? Is every single guy, one through nine, one through 17, my goal was not to have them look perfect, was not to have them take the perfect BP of what I'd imagine the perfect, you know, ball flight to the pool side. Everybody's hitting the the sign in right center field, just lasers, lasers, lasers. Is every guy one through 17 had to be put in the best position for themselves to get to second base. And what do I mean by that, right? There's a multitude of ways to get to second base, but what is the value of a base? Right. What is the value of a base in terms of doing how do you win? You score runs. You score more runs than the other team. On the defensive and pitching side, you need to limit bases, right? That's why coaches since the age of time have been talking about limit walks, limit errors, limit mistakes, stuff like that, because you cannot be giving away free bases. Well, on the offensive side, we also don't understand, and I don't feel like people talk about enough how valuable the base is, right? Whether it be getting on anyway, reaching by error, hustle, hit by pitches, things like that obviously is just a different side of coaching and, and team development on the whole. But getting to second base specifically, right? If you look at, and I don't have the, I had it in a file that is now locked away behind my Arcadia email. Um, so I don't have access to it anymore. I had a ton of analytics on run probabilities, right? When you look at run probabilities, the chances of scoring a run, this is major league run probabilities. I didn't have access to make college or division three run probabilities, which I wish I did because I would have, but major league run probabilities. Now the things you have to factor at the major league level that don't happen at the division three level errors rarely happen at the big league level, right? Hit by pitches. They rarely happen at the big league level, free bases, Walks are up across major leagues, but in reality, rarely happen at the big big league level. At the Division three level, there is some value to 
you know, there are multiple errors a game. There is sloppy defensive play. There is sloppy pitching that tends to hit guys and get wild and, and allow more free bases. So when you're looking at run probabilities, you have to factor in those types of things. Like runner on third, two outs is more valuable at the division three level than runner on third, two outs at the major league level, because how often is, does a pass ball happen at the major league level with a runner on third? If somebody could pull me up a video, I'd love to see it. But at the Division Three level and Division Two and Division One and high school, whether whatever level we have, you know, listeners at, it happens a lot. So the age old adage was used to hear drive me up a wall is can't steal third with two outs because you're already in scoring position. Well, shoot, man. Last time I checked, we're playing sloppy baseball in February and it's thirty seven degrees and windy and there's not a the sun's not out. And this pitcher has a tendency to spike his curveball and this catcher can't really move. So let's get that guy to third base. Right. But that is just talking about the, the factors of run probabilities and how the numbers would change right at the major league level between and the division three level. But I think there is a good baseline that we can follow off of the run probabilities of major league baseball. And basically, statistically speaking, percentage of times a runner on first with nobody out scores is not much different than a runner on nobody on, nobody out, and that percentage of them scoring, right? It's like 16%, nobody on, nobody out, 20% runner on first, nobody out. When you start to get to the point of second base, right, when... It's runner on second with no outs, one out, two out. The percentages go up greatly. Obviously, nobody out. So the goal is for every guy to get to second base with nobody out, right? That is the priority. And why does what does this have to do with individualized development? Because when you're in a team setting, your goal is to score runs. It's to win games, right? You're building your offense to score runs. You're not building your offense to at the major league, at the minor league level to develop and get them to the next level where they ultimately are in the best position to succeed at the major league level. No, at the college level and the division three level, like our goal is to score more runs than the opponent. So we need to be able to get every guy one through nine to second base without giving out an out, right? That's the key there too, is don't give up an out. I, depending on the hitter, Run probabilities, bunting a guy to second base. We talked about this way back in the summer when I believe it was Matt Veerling laid down a bunt late in the game, eight or in the fourth inning with the Phillies against the Braves, and the difference of how that run probability factors in for that hitter versus, you know, let's say if the Braves were in that position, it doesn't make a difference for that guy to lay down a bunt. It doesn't add any run probabilities. But when you look at the ability to get guys to second base with nobody out. So at Arcadia, we had a unique situation where we stole a lot of bases. Um, really good coaching staff that prioritized that. And we had guys on our team that might not be doubles guys per se, but they could get themselves to second base, right? They weren't cloggers and really prioritizing as quick as possible, right? And being able to build your offense around doing that helps. Right. So that allows you to put guys in buckets. And then you're able to talk about getting guys to third with one out. Right. And obviously, I emphasize, I also believe getting guys to third with two outs is beneficial 100%. But the priority is 
get a man on second with nobody out and get a man on third with one out. Technically, second with two outs, beneficial. That's kind of the goal because, and this is the other thing that that people don't understand. I believe baseball is played in a vacuum, right? I'm a assistant coach. My job is not, my job is to produce runs, right? My job is not to necessarily oversee the, the whole operation to produce the best result. In a vacuum of baseball, you're more likely to score percentage-wise with nobody on, nobody out, than you are with runner on first, two outs. But that percentage doubles when you get runner on second, two outs, right? So what is the hurt if you're playing baseball in a vacuum, if you believe baseball is one continuum, doesn't end after nine innings, right? You're not playing for that nine innings that day. Whole big continuum. Why aren't we stealing second with two outs all the time with guys that can even run a little bit, right? Why don't we take that chance? Why don't we take that opportunity to potentially get that guy to second base? Because the especially where you're at in the lineup, if you've got your nine hitter on first with your first hitter on up, and he might not be a guy that, that can necessarily drive the gap and, and get that guy to score from first, because the odds of you getting two hits to score that run, a little bit slimmer, right? But you get that guy to second base, and then you're, you have a fresh start, nobody on, nobody out. Like I said, if baseball was played in a vacuum and not viewed from a nine-inning lens, you would probably say like, hey, why aren't we taking that chance to steal second base? Sure, he gets thrown out, but we have a fresh start with a higher chance of scoring a run than the runner on first, two outs. Because then you waste an at-bat with the guy on your top of the order, blah, 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 blah. And again, this is what smart coaches have been doing since the age of time, but we're just adding the fact of percentages and how analytics can impact decision-making and how to go about your business. That's the way I believe in it. So once you get to the point of understanding how to almost manipulate your offense to score the most runs possible, then you can start to understand what makes guys click, right? What's going to help guys be successful. And what we did at Arcadia that was I thought was amazing. It was great. We had four roles that we put guys in. And again, we're going to talk about, I don't like saying putting guys in buckets because when it comes down to development, you have to be individualized. But when it comes down to production, you can put guys in buckets. And I'll explain that in a little bit of what I mean by that point. We had hitters, which were kind of your all-around guys, your high average, doubles, showed power, could run the bases, just did everything well, right? You have your runners. Those are your guys that like you're just praying they get on first base because they're running early. They're getting themselves in the scoring position. They're potentially getting themselves to third base as quick as possible, right? The value of the base for them is they, you know, they might be a low slug guy who just puts themselves in scoring position almost more than your power guys because they're on base more. They're swiping 30 bags and stuff like that. If you really put the pedal to the metal and really let that guy go crazy, you're going to see amazing results from a guy who might not flash in the stat sheet when you click on, you know, ArcadiaSports.com, but if that guy's really wrecking havoc, right? That's kind of their goal. We had sluggers, self-explanatory. Those are your extra base hit guys. The way I viewed them was 50%. We played in kind of a pitcher's part with the wind always blowing in from left. 50% of your hits should go for extra bases, right? 
That's it. Get yourself to second base with one swing of the bat. You're not expected to hit for average. You're really not expected to, you know, put balls in play with two strikes. You're kind of expected to, to you know, get a little more in your swing, get a little more effort, get a little more of, of that going on. And then we had our role players, which these are the guys that, you know, could kind of, if they develop, fit into any one of those buckets, but they're not there yet. You had a lot of freshmen, a lot of developmental pieces. We would kind of say like, you're a role player with a ceiling of hitter, right? You're a role player with a ceiling of runner. You're a role player with a ceiling of slugger, right? And we'll kind of, you know, build development around that idea, right? So with that in mind, you can then, and and that was not something that we thought of. It was uh, Matt Deggs, who is a very well-known, um, really good offensive coach. He is known for the pack, um, for a book and it's the pack offense, right? And we took a lot of his information, right? Coaching is all about maximizing the information you can learn, right? That's pretty much what it comes down to. And that was something that we felt like would help our program and, and it helped our individualized development because then we could start to say like, what, what do we envision this guy is, right? What do we envision this guy is? What, what do we envision this guy could be, right? And at that point, then you start to break down. So that's where I like buckets, but where people kind of go to buckets is like, oh, you're in sluggers. Like, well, here's a heavy bat. Here's med balls. Here's go hit the ball off the top of the cage and I'll see you on, on the field taking BP, right? But that's not as simple as that because when you look at the sluggers, especially the sluggers, right? What works for them might be different to each individual, right? And that this is where individualized offensive development comes into play is just in my experience, right? short-lived experience. I'm sure there's coaches that could come on here and get long-winded about different guys that did different things and had different moves and they were able to maximize their potential. And that that's what I love to hear. But we had one guy who could just flat out pull a baseball, right? But how did he get there? If he tried to pull a baseball, he would freaking hook it into the first base dugout. He's a left-handed hitter. But man, it was a thing of beauty when he did everything right. So his cues and his thought process was other way, other way, other way. And the priority for him was to not lose his posture, to not lose his front side, right? His front shoulder, when it flew open, that told me he was thinking about pool. That meant that he, nothing was going to go well. He was going to be all out of swords. He was going to swing and miss a little bit more, all those things like that. But when he was staying front side closed, I would hit, we'd be in the cage um, hitting and he would hit like three balls off the top of the turtle. I'm not even kidding you. And you'd hear me be like, boy, boy," Because again, it's about the it's about the process, not the result, right? We talk about that all the time. Like, and I, I, I am not going to fluff myself, but I embody that, right? I embody it, process over result. And the process of how he got to hitting the ball off the top of the turtle was showing that he was doing the right things. This dude couldn't hit a ground ball to shortstop to save his life, 
But that thought process kept him connected and kept his front side in as long as possible. And when he started hitting balls off the top of the cage, bink, 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 round of four pregame, I'm giving him knucks getting out of the cage, right? It's first round of the day. If he freaking clanks four balls off the turtle, I'm like, dude, this dude's about to put on a laser show next round. And he would. A lot of times, and he would. And he was a young guy. You know, you could definitely see him growing into more of of a complete hitter as time went, but that was what worked for him, right? We had another guy who had left-handed hitter who just, it was almost like the foul poles were turned, right? Foul poles were turned. And his right field pole was center field. And when I say he had big time juice, he had big time juice. You know, I still got, I actually still have the, exit velocities that we tracked from our time as a team. And I he was our leader in exit velocity. And I'd have to look back. I probably should have been a little, little bit more prepared for this, but he flashed like 110 on exit velocity. And like I said, it was like, it, it was it was clobbered. It was probably like closer to like 103, 104. Um, but it he just it was like pushy with everything, but he clobbered balls when he got them in the air. But when he tried to get to pool, it was a lot of topspin, a lot of a lot of poolside topspin and, and ain't nothing coming no matter how hard you hit the ball, and ain't nothing coming good from poolside topspin. So it got to the point where obviously, you know, we wanted in a perfect world I'd love to readjust those foul poles and get him to have that his power alley where you know he gets the most power to beat the actual right field line because you know he would have had legit power but got to the point and i I mean i i I would see him balls that would be hitting off pitching machine high below and just get sawed off and like and like because the ball was off the plate in you know you dial in a hack attack for your majority righties and somebody doesn't fix it before a lefty hops in and they're just getting sawed off he'd inside out a baseball and just off the wall and center you'd be like what the heck how do you do that so it got to a point where i was like dude you just just do that right like just do that don't even don't even worry about pulling the ball you got juice to right center field left center field right you got juice out there so why why wouldn't you just stick to that and then we had another hitter who was kind of you know, in that, again, in that slugger kind of mold where they flash a lot of power, where it's kind of the same thing as, you know, he would get topsy turny, he'd get Yankee, he'd get jumpy, he'd get all those things, and posture would just fly open. And with him, it was like, dude, just saw, like, you just need to think low liner at the second, at the shortstop shin, another lefty, shortstop shin, right? And he got it. He understood it. His body started to move in different ways. He'd take time in the PVC pipe, really emphasizing movements, really emphasizing posture, really emphasize keeping his bat in the hitting zone as long as possible, getting in early, holding it late. And he te- he finally texted me this offseason. It was like, dude, all I think is like hard on top the other way. And when I get to the pool side, it's pool side with Baxman. And all of that's to, to say, you know, not to, to fluff my, my guys at Arcadia, which I have no problem doing, but each individual has different needs, right? And when you're talking about putting guys in buckets, too many times we put guys in buckets and be like, 
this is how you need to do it, right? You need to develop power. Just go club balls off the top of your cage. I mean, I've heard coaches say, take a fungo and try to hit it, you know, in a cage and just hit it off the top of the cage, right? And maybe, maybe I haven't seen it work for somebody, but maybe that does work for somebody, right? I was the type of hitter, the more I thought about hitting the ball in the air, the less quality balls I hit in the air. And that's kind of the real versus feel type situation is you have to be able to understand what's going to allow you to produce the best result. No debates, major league data, analytics, no debates, hand up. The most effective ball, the most quality ball hit is 95 plus in the air to the pool side. Three things. But we've heard age old stories about JD Martinez just being able to think pull and like those guys get so much traction, right? I got to pull the ball. I got to pull the ball. I got to pull the ball, whatever it be. Right. And there, there's other guys. I'm, I'm, JD has such good right center juice. So maybe he's a bad example, but the cues that work for him, right. Might not work for Bryce Harper. They might not work for Cody Bellinger. They might not work for Joey Gallo right? They might not work for Kyle Schwarber, these guys that slug at the big league level. And so many, like the, when we started talking about the launch angle craze, right? What got forgotten in all of it was that each hitter was individual. Every hitter thought they needed to start dropping their back shoulder and just lifting up because there were certain guys that developed that way. In my experiences, I've seen the guys that are flat, flat bat path, right? Those guys that were taught their whole life, hard on top, hard on top, hard on top. They just spray worm burners out there. Just the facilities guy is in left center on his tractor, just get pissed when this dude's hitting BP because he's just eating up the front of the plate. Those guys can think like if we're going to develop those guys and push them to the next level of getting to the point where they hit the ball 95 plus in the air to the pool side, those guys can think, Hey, dude, just just try to hit it in the air, right? When you're flat and all you start thinking about is hitting the ball in the air, you hold your posture for a lot longer, you stay in the hitting zone for a lot longer, and you produce the desired result. For guys that have a tendency to be uphill, to be in and out of the hitting zone, if you're a coach that can't understand that that's different from the guy who's flat, so maybe you had success with a guy who's flat, Right, you're like, oh, this this is everything. Every hitter should do this. Right, talking about this is the ideal result. Right, I said no debates for me. Pull side in the air at 95 plus the three cores of every batted ball that's going to have a lot of success. When a guy works uphill or has a tendency to work uphill, you're messing him up by telling him to swing up. Right to hey hit the ball in the air. Come on, let's get the ball in the air. Let's get the ball in the air. Blah 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 blah. You putting a you know the great wall of screens or whatever in front. That's gonna jack that kid up. Trust me, because his bat is already not in the hitting zone for a long time. We got to keep his bat in the hitting zone. Thinking swing down for that kid that's naturally uphill. Those guys with nice lefty beautiful swings that work uphill. Those guys need to think swing down so that they can stay in the hitting zone for that extra second longer. That's going to allow them to produce back. Their swing naturally puts them in a position to elevate the ball to the pool side, right? So 
All of this is to say that when you're talking about individualized development, you have to prioritize what's going to help the guy. I have a book behind me, Real Versus Feel, and that's where I I learned that. It's like, hey, dude, every guy is different. And like to a T, like even verbiage, right? Because I used to say this all the time, like it, I would get like guys would ask me like, hey, like my coach said this, what do you think? And I'd be like, dude, that's the same thing I say. That's the same thing I say. It's different verbiage. And I used to play with that. Like I used to be like, hey, like my go-to is like, hey, like hard on t- or like, hey, let's our body flowing to right center field allows us to pull the ball to left field. And like I'm, my classic line, I used to tell guys, Marshall this all the time. What did they say in, in Cars 1? What did Doc Hudson say to Lightning McQueen in Cars 1? Sometimes you got to turn left to turn right. I used to tell hitters that all the time. Like, bro, I, I keep hooking these balls foul. Foul home runs or strikes. I keep hooking these balls foul. I feel like I'm getting them, blah, blah, blah. You say, you got. sometimes you got to turn left to turn right. Sometimes you got to think right center field to hit the ball to left field. True, right? Golf. It's the age old thing. I could grab a golf club right now and turn and burn, put my feet in the ground and produce as much force as possible. But if it doesn't go straight, it's not playable. Baseball is the same concept. You could hit a ball 110, but if it has topspin, it's right at the shortstop. You could hit a ball 110 at 26 to left field, but if it has topspin, it falls in for a single. No, if we're producing 110 at 26, we want homers. We want pumps. We want runs scored with one swing of the bat, right? So topspin, sidespin, all those things, it's not allowing us to have the maximum output of our batted ball. So little cues, like that's why since the age of time, hitters have been able to say, like Mike Trout will hop in the cage and A-Rod will blow him for saying, I think hard on top of the second base. Yeah, because it keeps his body connected. He works uphill. A-Rod, that doesn't mean J.D. Martinez is wrong. That doesn't mean any coach who thinks uphill is wrong. That just means that's what somebody found out that's what worked for Mike Trout. And that's what worked for A-Rod too. You didn't swing down, but it kept you in the hitting zone for a long time, which allowed you to produce power. And I'm sure A-Rod, not in these little snippets, would say that. I guarantee that, that that's the end result of what he believes. But we need to stop villainizing swing up. We need to stop villainizing swing down as a hitting community. I freaking deleted my Twitter because of you people. That's the problem, right? Swing down works. Swing up works. Thinking pool works. Thinking oppo works. Thinking hard on top works. Having off, but having an offense built around everybody hitting ground balls to second base doesn't work. Because you could have a 6'4 donkey hitting freaking worm burners. And he's not beating out a ground ball. And you're limiting that guy's potential. As a hitting coach and as really any coach, you have to be able to walk into the cage and be able to connect with every hitter at the drop of a dime. And that goes back to all the way to relationships. You have to have a relationship to know why that guy does what he does. You have to be able to break down his swing and understand why he moves a certain way. What is it? Is it physical limitations? Is it mental thoughts? Is it cues? Is it feels? Is it, you know, what they do in warmups? Is it, you know, where did that come from? Where did you learn that? Where did you build that swing? That takes time. You're molding this hitter to be the hitter that you want him to be. And that takes time. 
right? So when you're talking about individual offensive development in a team setting, you have to take that time to build that relationship to understand that like, dude, you need this, right? And I, it used to crack me up. I used to sit on the back of the turtle and freaking one guy comes in and like, you know, we're like, hey, hard on top, hey, hard on top, hey, hard on top. And the next kid would walk in and I'd be like, bro, hit one off the foul pole, pull side foul pole, hit one off the foul pole, hit one off the foul pole, hit one off the foul pole. Because those are guys who were flat. Like those are guys who stayed in the hitting zone, who held their posture a long time. Those guys that work oppo, I'd be like, bro, hit it off the foul pole. And the other guy would hop back in and be like, hey, hard on top to short, hard on top to short. And I would just find out what works. And, and you know, it never, it didn't click with all 17, right? You have your select few that it did click with. You have your select few that it might not have, right? It takes time. It takes years. It takes development. That's where it comes from. So next time you see these organizations like the Dodgers, how do they make so many first round picks into superstars? How do they develop so many talented guys? How do they have a new outfielder every week? It's because of this exactly. It's because they pick the guy. And too many times as MLB organizations, they and as a community, we talk about what guys need to fix, right? Elijah Green strikes out too much. James Wood strikes out too much. I mean, those are the examples that come to mind. Garrett Mitchell hits too many balls on the ground. Whatever it be, you took him in the first round, not because he hits too many, not not because you think if he develops power, he'd be great. You took him in the first round because if he if he wasn't good at what he does, he wouldn't be doing it, right? He wouldn't be successful. He wouldn't be a first round pick. You're not just taking a flyer on a guy just because you think he could develop into something. That's what the fifth round's for. That's what the sixth round's for, right? And obviously you do you do take guys with the the idea that they will develop. But that's why I say, and I know I've said it on this podcast before, any first round bust that isn't maturity or injury is an organization's issue. It's not a player's issue because you're probably getting in his dome. You're probably messing with his swing. You're probably messing with what worked. Mickey Moniak doesn't go 1-1 without having talent, without having skill. But how many people thought, hey, you need to I mean, I, I do agree. You need to add 20 pounds and he never did and he could never hold that weight. But how many people thought you need to hit the ball in the air more? You need to hit the ball in the air more. You need to hit the ball in the air more. I can already see it right now. His front side's flying open, his bat's in and out of the hitting zone, and he's top spinning balls foul to the pool side. People can't figure out why that is. That's because he's thought hard on top to short his whole life. His whole life. And you have to find a way to let that guy grow. We had a kid. Stud, first team preseason All American, shout out. You know who you are. If you know, you know. That was all the other way. And he's strong as an ox. Strong as an ox. And I had to swallow the fact that we used to talk about it all the time. Let's just put it this way better. We used to talk about it all the time. To get where you want to be, to be the player you want to be. You might have to do that game, have that part of your game. You can't just go to the Division One level. and I mean, you can. He's good enough to. But to develop into the hitter that you're capable of being the all-around hitter, potentially playing professional baseball, that kind of talent, you have to be able to be a Swiss Army knife, right? But Christian Yelich talked about how it came naturally. 
it was just contact point. He didn't change anything. I didn't walk in and say like, hey, you got to pull the ball more. No, because he rolled out of bed and hit 460. Be an idiot. I'd be a fool. But so many coaches that think a certain way would watch a kid take one round of BP and tell you what he needs to fix. No, you need to tell that kid what works. You need to help that kid find out what works. And once he gets to the point, it's going to come natural. It's going to come over time. You're going to develop into the hitter you're capable of being. And you cannot force feed things because that's when you put hitters in a position to fail. And it's all about putting hitters into a position to be successful. So when we talk about individuals, individualized offensive development, and obviously I do want to connect this to big league, you know, to a certain extent is like I said, with the Houston Astros, which the, with the Dodgers, with all these teams that develop great players, they they do these things. But one of the things that, that I kind of mentioned earlier back to getting guys to second base is this is something that I think we're seeing at the major league level, right? I wrote an article for prospects 365 way back when I was in college, never saw the light of day. But basically, it came to the fact of like value, valuing offensive production, right? My opinion, and I don't think this is debate. They're now on the same team. We got a, little, a lot of Phillies fans that listen to this podcast, Trey Turner, and not because Nick Castellanos had a bad offensive year last year. Trey Turner's more valuable offensive piece than Nick Castellanos was. And I wrote this in probably 2018, 2019. And my whole point was 280 with 30 steals and 20 homers is better than 280, 20 homers, and no steals, right? Because there's value in the guy that can get themselves in a scoring position more often. You see the Yankees, they started pushing Glaber to run. They started pushing Judge to run. Tim LaCastro was on their team. Connor Falefa, that's all he did was run. Connor Falefa is the epitome of a singles guy. Well, singles guys are cloggers at the big league level. Now, the the home run, definitely in play at all times. But if you notice, Connor Falefa's stolen bases went up. I think that's intentional. The Orioles, stolen bases across the board went up. Jorge Mateo played every day. Nobody could find a role for Jorge Mateo. The Orioles said, hey, dude, just do what you do. Just get on base. Get on base at a 350 clip and steal 45 bags and just watch the production go up. So you're starting to see, and I, when I wrote this article, I called it the revaluation of the stolen base. And obviously with the new rules, we're probably going to see an even more increase, greater increase in this. But there was also just for anybody wondering, yes, when you got thrown out, it actually negatively impact your on-base percentage. So I know Rugnet Odor was a guy back in the day that used to be like 12 for 25 or something like that guy would just run like an idiot and get thrown out a lot. Like that hurts your on-base percentage, which hurts your overall value, right? So you have to be a high percentage runner. They say, uh, they say 80% clip is how you still bring value, right? You have to steal an 80% clip. Well, I think with the information we have and the pitcher's priority is not to control the run game anymore and the speed that we have from guys like we can we can move on guys a lot more and i think you're starting to see it and i think you're going to start to see it continue to grow i think the orioles and yankees are two teams that i think off the top of my head are prioritizing this like hey we can find value in a guy who gets on first base and steals second 
And it might not show in his on-base percentage. It might not show in his slugging percentage. It might not show in his average even. But if this dude can get on base and steal second as frequently as possible, we're going to get some quality play out of that guy. So that's something to keep an eye on this coming year. Um, continue to to watch. I'll, I truly believe that this is what MLB organizations are doing. So um, definitely understand that uh, I'll be talking about it on this podcast. Super fired up for this podcast. Like I said, now that I have a little gap time for work, I'll probably be produced, trying to produce another episode tomorrow. Colin should be getting back on vacate from vacation. Maybe we could get Dan on here this weekend, things like that. I just want to produce as much content for you guys, cover as much topics. If, if you guys see anything, you want to reach out, hit me up. I'll talk about anything. You know, I have no problem getting on here and, and blabbering about baseball. I mean, I just took 47 minutes out of your day you know, talking about individualized offensive development, which is obviously something that I'm very passionate about, but I have no problem doing a 20 minute video on anything. So, um, make sure you're following all the social channels. Uh, TikTok is up and running. We got videos out there, follow, share, send your friends. You know, we're just trying to do anything to grow this podcast. We really love doing it. We love Colin, Dan, and I all love doing it. We want to grow it. We want to, you know, build it into a national brand, quite frankly. And we believe TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, those are the ways to do it. We go live on YouTube. The whole videos are up there. If you want to see my, my bookshelf and, and my, my dog today. So, uh, you can definitely, uh, check that out, subscribe, share with five friends and, and, you know, we'll keep trying to grow this pro- podcast. We'll keep, keep producing content, look out for the TikTok videos and, and no doubt about it, we're, we're enjoying doing this. So we're planning to keep on doing it as much as possible and, and hoping that by the summertime, we're bringing you guys a ton of content. So until next time, we'll see you guys next podcast.